Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Do you know what's most painful? The most painful thing in this entire ugly incident is the ingratitude. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we're going to tackle some big meta questions about the way we conduct scientific research. Would you call this episode methodology porn? <laughs> I don't think anybody will get the enjoyment <laughs> that is required with the, the word porn next to it. The, uh, yeah. the, the sheer pleasure of discussions of of specific techniques in the science. You don't think anybody will uh, jerk off to this episode? Well, that's a separate question. I just don't think it will be because of the methodology discussion. <laughs> It'll be be- because of our luscious, dulcet voices. Sultry voices, yeah. <laughs> Independent of content, really. That's why most people listen. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not at all the content. It is the, the form. In any case, so uh, we're going to talk about two things today. In the first segment, a short discussion of a New York Times piece by... C.T. Nguyen, Nguyen and Becca Williams. Yeah, and Becca Williams is a longtime listener. Um, she's a philosopher at the University of Minnesota Mankato, where I recently gave a talk and met Becca. And uh, yeah, she's been listening, I think, almost since the very beginning. Like you look on our Facebook posts from like 2013, you will see Becca Williams. I don't know if she's still listens, but she was an OG when it comes to that's great and good for good for philosophers forget it. I love it when philosophers get into the New York Times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's called why we call things porn, but maybe we should say what we're going to talk about in the second segment too. Yeah, we teased this last episode, the it's Social Psychology and Science Some Lessons from Solomon Ash by Paul Rosen, a 2001 paper, which is a methodological critique of social psychology with some positive recommendations, but definitely a critique of the way he worries that the field is, or, or the, the course that it's taking. And because that discussion is, is so depressing, we decided to talk about porn. <laughs> it is kind of depressing <laughs> because it's not totally clear what to do about it. Uh, right. Uh, but it's like, I'm just going to leave this here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't even work. Yeah. I mean, you're in the field. So we'll talk. Yeah. yeah in any yeah, case, yeah. yeah, let's talk about porn first, although not the fun kind of porn necessarily. Um, this is a discussion about like why when we use the word porn when it's not threesomes and stepsisters stepsisters almost always stepsisters or step <laughs> stepmothers 
It's really hard to find like porn that doesn't have a stepmother in it. It's amazing that it's taken over so much. I, I, I have a good friend whose seventy-five-year-old dad is um, his. A re, he's a recent widower, and and uh, he's now remarrying at around age seventy-five, seventy-six. And all we could uh, talk about was that now stepmom porn is going to take on a whole new meaning. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah. So it's this idea of like why we call other things porn, like food porn. Um, Real estate porn. Closet organization porn, which I actually love. I, I don't know. They don't mention when this trend happened. I, I feel like it's been in the last five years that it's really, really taken off. But even, you know, I remember early us talking about the subreddit called Justice Porn. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, it's definitely been around uh, for a while, but, but with the rise of Instagram, I think food, people taking pictures of their food. Uh, and yeah. calling it food porn. And this is food um, porn, not like Tampopo, that movie. Do you remember that movie? <laughs> no. It's like a Japanese movie that really was like they would put uh, culinary <laughs> masterpieces on their like <laughs> naked bodies and lick them off and stuff like that. Yeah, that's not that. It's not that. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, right. It's like these cooking shows, which I've never gotten into. And the closet organization porn, I don't even know what that is. Is that like that Japanese woman? Uh, what's yeah, I guess so. Although she's more about a, bro- a broader philosophy of organization. Um, uh, what is her name? Uh, Marie something. Yeah, other. Marie something. Uh, I was in a hotel and saw like a, a couple of her shows. Marie 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 Kondo. Marie Kondo. Yes. Yeah. It was yeah. really weird. Like I had never. You know, I had a moment of wait. I got to do this. I got to like <laughs> go through my t-shirts and thank them and send them away, you know, like <laughs> it's great, you know, but she she's brought ritual to uh to 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 the task in a way that I think as you as soon as you sort of at least me like allow myself to not feel like it's stupid. Right. Um, then I realized that it is kind of a powerful thing to do. I, I, that's exactly um, right. It brings ritual, yeah. and we're hungry for ritual in general, mm-hmm. I think. And, and I don't know, maybe like some a lot of these porn things, like the food, just the ritual of cooking, and the, a lot of these things right. maybe where uh, are, are banking on our hunger and the relative absence of ritual yeah. in our lives. So, okay, porn, so they the uh, these guys argue this new generic sense of porn um is catching on because it's useful it gives a name to a specific kind of relationship we can have with images and other media it's worth getting clear about the nature of that relationship for once we understand understand it we may discover that we have cultivated some porny relationships in some unexpected places and so so they quote the philosopher michael ray who says that an image is sexual pornography when we use it for immediate gratification while avoiding the complexities of actual sexual relationships like physical intimacy, emotional connection, and romantic interaction. Now, what do you think about that? Does that capture what you think of as, as what makes something porn? Um, it definitely sometimes is that. I guess it seems like there are other things you could use for immediate graf- gratification, sexual, even sexual gra- uh, gratification while avoiding the complexities of sexual relationships like that could also apply to going to a prostitute or just hooking up with somebody, you know, uh, Ashley right. Madison or something like that. 
Um, right, right. And and I guess in his definition, Michael Ray's it's it's about an image. So he's Oh, an image. Is, right. Yeah, he's stating that it is an image, but but that doesn't mean, right? That means uh, I don't know if it's something other than like you don't ha- you can have auditory porn, I suppose. Um Yeah, it used to be that like remember those 900 <laughs> numbers that you would call? Yeah, and even before that 976. Yeah, right. And, and then 1900. <laughs> yeah. I was too young to to figure out how to call those. I was just <laughs> old enough, like as, as it was kind of coming to an end, but uh, definitely old enough to get some questions from my parents about a bit the, the, the phone bill. <laughs> so here's the, so when and this is central to what they argue because then then they use this to generalize to other kinds of things we call porn, like food porn. So using it for immediate gratification while avoiding the complexities of actual sexual relationships like intimacy. And then yeah. I guess it has to be the case since you're watching it as a third party. So if your partner, if your if your sexual partner sends you uh images, graphic images of themselves naked or in sexual acts, is that not pornography because it involves I guess so. I guess I guess that's right. Yeah, then it's that not. seems right. I guess the other thing is, you know, you, if you watch porn with your wife or girlfriend, or I don't know. I mean, that's yeah. still but, like yeah, who that's cares? A, that's a like, it seems yeah, fine. Yeah, it's, it's good still. enough. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I want you to conceptually analyze this. So, um, okay, so <laughs> so generalizing this, real estate porn is pictures of real estate used for instant gratification without your having to buy the house, clean it. Or take care of all that furniture. Are there so? Are there any categories of visual porn like that that you actually enjoy? Like, do you like the justice porn or the justice porn? That website I really liked, and I actually do think that definition of pornography, the uh, or the generic sense of porn, works pretty well with justice porn. It was a way to see justice being done without having to do anything other than go to a right. subreddit and right. it was very gratifying often you know when they were good it was very gratifying to see without um and i guess revenge movies have a have a porn element a justice porn element right. in that sense too and right. it is something that you avoid the complexities of actually what doing that in real life would entail. So in that sense, I think this is a good illuminating definition of right. generic right. porn. And that, that's, that's like, well, before I get to the moral outrage porn, which is sort of the, the point of their op-ed, um, there, there is a great, I, I, I think a lot of people like, like this subreddit or follow it. It's called power washing porn. And it's just little videos or gifs of people using a power washer to clean something and it is so it's so satisfying like it is instant gratification i, I feel like uh, uh makeover shows or uh, like you know things where you see befores and afters even movie montages where somebody's exercising and at the beginning they suck and then at the end they're really really good that's i think that fits the definition of right this is vicariously giving you the feeling like that you've completed something or that you've done something or that you could consume something without any of the cost. You really like power washing porn? <laughs> yeah, man, I'm going to link, I'll link to it. There's, there's these, you know, you'll see like say an old, uh, 
wooden deck that that has accumulated a lot of dirt and moss or whatever and then and then all of a sudden this power washer goes through and, and it looks like a brand new shiny deck you get to right watch below. it you just see it uh, you get to watch it happen mm. it's great it's great, it's great. let me t- i need to take a break <laughs> <laughs> so then so i think that's a good that's a good account and then they start going into whether it's good or bad for society these kinds of generic porns that we've seem like we're getting pretty attached to what they argue in the second half of this unfortunately a very short essay is that certain things like food porn are fine Real estate porn, I guess, might be fine, although I could see it. Might make you unhappy about your yeah, house. Yeah, exactly. But then there is this this moral outrage porn, which they talk about as like Facebook feeds or, you know, Twitter, um, where you can where you can just watch people say outrageously horrible things or the latest thing that Trump tweeted or the latest the latest racist thing that the Republicans aren't condemning or whatever. And that, they argue, is actually something that's problematic. Right. And it, I mean, it's, it's a point that we've made in, in previous episodes. I actually have a, an article that I wrote not too long ago with, with Roy Baumeister called uh, superhero comics as moral pornography, which is very similar to what they're saying here about the the desire to see cartoonish depictions of the enemy, the satisfaction that it gives, um, and the lack of nuance in these depictions in this in these portrayals. Right, so so you're you're flexing a moral muscle that is not well equipped to handle the moral complexities of the real world i think yeah is it you know yeah and it's arguably worse when you're doing it with real life events than when you're doing it with superheroes because you might interact with people who are uh you know trump supporters or supporters of republicans or something like that and to carry around a cartoonish view about what they believe I think one of the central points that they make with the most important point here is that moral outrage porn can lead to inaction. So I think that there's, I don't, I don't know if there's research on this, but, but that once you express moral outrage, you kind of feel like you're done. And I think that's the similarity that, that it might have to these other kinds like power washing porn. I'm vicariously sensing fulfillment. Like it feels like, I'm getting that sense of satisfaction as if I had really done something, but in reality, I haven't done shit. As if you right? really cleaned out your closet or power washed yeah, your Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, and I didn't actually. So it's getting, it's kicking into gear that, that mental system of, of satisfaction, like a goal has been completed um, when I, I have done nothing. And in the case of moral outrage, like I may, may have done worse than, than nothing. I may have just incited somebody else to to express outrage and right. then do nothing. You're not actually trying to fix the problems. You feel like you've done your job. My job is done here. <laughs> After you've posted on Facebook your condemnatory thing that will only reach everybody who already agrees with you. I mean, so there's there's a lot of overlap here with criticize the moral grandstanding stuff that we right. talked about. Right. Um, so I think that, yeah, so there, there are two separate critiques, which I don't think they have time to fully develop. The one is 
that you don't actually get out there in the real world and try to solve the problems. And then there's the other thing where you are getting this more cartoonish uh, lack of nuanced view of people that when you do interact with them, you will now view them in a way that it's it's both not accurate and it will be unproductive in terms of coming to some sort of agreement. You will just be basking in your smugness about them rather than right. engaging them in a serious way. Right. Like they say, a more a moral uh over time they may even develop a less nuanced and more easily inflamed sense of right and wrong to increase their moral outrage. So you you can automat you, you can very quickly put somebody into the evil bin and that's a quick and easy way to get you inflamed uh, without really listening to them. But I think that the, there is a big, a big difference. So when I was talking about uh, power washing porn, I get that sense of satisfaction at the end, but I'm very aware that it's, raw, that it's false. I'm very aware that I've been sort of tricked, that, that like I should probably power wash my deck, but I'm not going to. Yeah. So, so like this played some trick on me. My intuition is that moral outrage in the porny sense is you're less clear that you have actually done nothing yes. when you express. Right. You, you feel like you actually have done the right. thing that you need to do, which is express outrage. It would be like you really, fe- if you felt like you had sex with... <laughs> like the porn star or whatever and people ask you like how many people have you had sex with and you're like oh, oh 2000 man. probably <laughs> i mean just in the last couple of days <laughs> no that's a great point i think that's right is in that sense it's more insidious because it's not those things are transparent to you it's like obvious to you upon introspection that it was porn not right. hence the guilty feeling at the end of your orgasm <laughs> exactly. that, that sort of dejection you don't have that dejection after posting like exactly like. no right and and in fact <laughs> like you do kind of get the sense that some people have lost any sense that that isn't just all that's expected and that there is actually this kind of more difficult more complex messy engagement with the real world i mean that's overstating it, probably. But I think you're right that the people who do this the most are probably the people who would least think of what they're doing as porn. Right, right, right. They, I mean, they take it seriously. Like, to, to call back to our previous discussion on trolling, this is, sin- this is not insincere. This is sincere. They think that it is their job. I actually was sitting next to a guy. I was on one of those shuttles to the rental car place, and I saw a guy sitting next to me scrolling through his Twitter feed and in the space of two minutes, he must have tweeted really quick off the cuff, like uh, three or four replies to, I don't know, something that Trump had done with like exactly this, like outrage. Just, yeah. just, and I couldn't believe it. Like, I, I, you know, and this guy was like probably in his 50s. The lesson, as always, is guard your your electronics when you're sitting next <laughs> to David Pizarro. <laughs> to David Pizarro. <laughs> but I think in a lot of cases, they're doing it because they think this is the right thing to do. We can't normalize this kind of behavior. So yeah. in that sense, I don't think maybe porn is the right analogy for it. So I was going to say maybe moral outrage porn is giving porn a bad name. Um, <laughs> yes, I think <laughs> that's right, actually. <laughs> but it is... There is no other kind of porn that I can think of um, in this in this generic sense of the word porn that 
where a negative emotion is the target where you know usually it's just this actual good like that we are riling ourselves up in this in this maybe calling it a negative emotion isn't fair but it certainly is more like anger and you know um, yeah i mean maybe like you know tragedies you know really sad tearjerker movies or you know these kind of greek tragedies where the goal is to evoke grief and right or fear and sadness and but those feel like they make you think more like contemplate you know the the misery of existence or, or the tragedy of life yeah um, within a distance that you know that you have that you're not confused right. about well i don't think i actually had sex with my mother and killed my father and right. tore out my eyes those those feel like closer to proxies for real life situations, like like they're allowing us true practice for maybe feeling those emotions in real life. Yeah. And may, maybe not, but at least it's closer to that. In and and something that's porny is not really like. And that's interesting because we don't think of these other porns necessarily as practice in the way that we mm-hmm. think of with great works of art, and specifically maybe tragedy yeah i mean and you wouldn't call hamlet uh decision porn or something <laughs> right right, you right, know, right. Like, it is, it yeah. is something different yeah. although the idea is sort of similar where you're uh you're getting vicarious access to certain right. kinds of situations that you wouldn't have had before that, that that's right. a separate I, I mean this is i guess where the i know it when i see it you know, it's the famous Supreme <laughs> right. Court thing. But the difference between art and porn is a separate kind of distinction that... Right. So I was thinking about uh, the this the, this difference between practice. Art is in this separate category, but you can imagine that... Um, I was talking about power washing or, or real estate or closet organizing. If, it, if it's a how-to, if it's a step-by-step instructional on how to do something, it ceases to be porn. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. It's 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 only porn when all you get is that satisfying moment. Right. Like that. Ooh, that looks really cool. Right. Uh, so they end there with a interesting analogy where they say, recall a traditional worry about sexual pornography that it evokes pleasure by portraying sexuality in unrealistic terms, and that consumers of sexual pornography then risk exporting unrealistic expectations to the real world of sex with potentially disastrous consequences. So I think the idea is that some kid is going <laughs> to, you know, wait, why am I not doing like a 40-person reverse gangbang <laughs> in real life? <laughs> and, and, then, and then he tries to plan it yeah, and yeah. Has, he invites 40 female, like, eighth grade classmates to his birthday party <laughs> like why not hey, wait what mm-hmm. like but they i haven't even blown out the candy yeah. uh <laughs> so and then they say the equivalent worry with moral outrage porn is that its consumers having simplified their moral systems for the sake of self-righteous pleasure will take that cartoon morality with them when they engage with the real world we may already be seeing the results now, I don't know specifically what they're referring to, but probably that we have maybe polarization where we're no longer engaging with people who disagree with us because we have 
this cartoonish sense of what they believe and how much better we are than them. Right. So I I was I was ready to disagree in in the sense that uh I think that in our everyday social lives we still maintain the nuance unless by unless by real life you mean Twitter or social media or whatever. Um but there is a way that but then I I thought about those people who um refuse and i've mentioned this we've talked about it on on the podcast before people who refuse to talk to somebody as soon as they find out they're a trump supporter right like so i've seen people just walk away like like literally with no with no further comment no goodbye no i disagree just walk away people have described tinder dates or whatever that ended (laughs) the moment somebody brought up their political belief they just get up and leave so in that in that sense then then maybe i can see the the results uh, of this um, yeah but i still i still think that in general we maintain you know and i guess i feel this way about sexual pornography i think in general yeah. you know the you have to maintain some sense of realism when you're engaging with other real human beings in social context yeah and i think well i think it's true that we tend to interact less with people we disagree with i'm not sure it's because of moral outrage porn i think it's i think it might be these other factors we're just more segmented but when people do interact with others who disagree with them on maybe some fundamental levels you know i'm always amazed with my classes which are very mixed politically how how well students can yeah. uh with a lot of maturity just tackle dis- disagreements that you know, they feel really strongly about abortion is a great example even politics right. although there aren't that many even in the south there aren't that many trump su- open trump supporters in my in my class right right so they might be yeah. they might be keeping quiet but but it's it's that's not the same as a disastrous consequence no. you know there's right yeah yeah and i don't know you know i've i've heard i've heard uh, from many professors mostly good stories about how interaction in classrooms goes when people disagree and almost always with some sort of sense of surprise that that people can can disagree so maturely but i don't know why why the surprise and i i've yeah. i've not heard very many stories of it going terribly wrong it's funny that because I agree, I've had the same experience. Everyone I talk to expresses that same, you know, uh, it seems like they've had a similar kind of experience that I have. And yet, when you look at the media, you wouldn't think that. Like the media, yeah. the way the media is portraying the classroom right now is very different than I think how the classroom actually is. That's just a product of this different kind of outrage porn where now it's an outrage right. at liberals for being intolerant and well yeah yeah it's what they what they even mentioned in the article outrage at outrage Civ- right? yeah although they talk about it in terms of civility i think this is different this is more the kind of outrage that i the outrage porn that i have which is the outrage just that people are giving a cartoonish depiction of college campuses i don't care that they're being uncivil I just think they're just being inaccurate and right. they're being right. inaccurate. Um, right. Well, as always with this, this discussion, we'll get people, people giving us examples, which is fine. Like if you have examples of it really going poorly, I, I think that it's hard to get data on how many people stay quiet. Yeah. 
because they're afraid. So, so who knows about that? But at least, at least I don't think that the instances of say people yelling at each other and storming out are, you know, I don't think, I mean, and partly one of the reasons people might stay quiet is because of the misleading impression that the media has given about what would happen if you didn't stay quiet. So, you know, this is a problem that sort of feeds on itself and becomes true. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good point. Well, it's it's a good little piece and you're right. Like I, for some reason, I just automatically assumed this was the stone the New York Times philosophy, you know, periodic philosophy column, but this was just right in the New York Times. So congratulations yeah. to Becca Williams. And although I don't know him, uh, C.T. Nguyen. Yeah. Apologies yeah. for butchering your name. Piece. All right. We'll be right back to talk about why Dave needs to find a new field. <laughs> This podcast is my new field. I (laughs) I mean, mine too, yeah. Okay, let's take a moment to thank one of our sponsors for this episode, Simple Habit. Simple Habit, a meditation app for people with busy lives. Dave, you know that I've been trying to get you to meditate regularly for the last few years. I think it would do you a lot of good, both for your life, for your relationships, and most importantly, for your work on the podcast. I, I, um, I grant you, I, I would like to try to form more of a habit. So I'm happy that Simple Habit is sponsoring, primarily because they have uh, meditation sessions that are anywhere between one and 20 minutes. And honestly, that five minute meditation is such a sweet spot for me. I've, I've given it a try a few times. Yeah, I mean, once you start doing it daily or almost daily for a long enough period of time, it becomes like brushing your teeth you just do it and it feels great and simple habit understands this and makes developing this daily routine easy and like you said they specialize in meditations of all lengths and they have meditations that are tailored to various aspects of your day meditations for the morning for going to sleep for your commute for a big meeting, if you're nervous about that, for parenting issues. There's even one, I don't know if you saw this, for mindful sex. There's a few. Yeah, for- I saw one for, gu- I didn't try it, the guided sex one, <laughs> yeah. but but uh, but I, I'm very curious. <laughs> and once you download the app, there are hundreds of meditations you can have for free and thousands of meditations with the premium version. And... This is one of the things that set Simple Habit apart. A lot of meditation apps just have a handful of teachers, and you're always going to be sick of some of them or find some of them annoying. Simple Habit has more than 100 experts offering guided meditations of all kinds, so you can find the ones that work for you. And they also have, and I know him from other things, my favorite guided meditation person, Oren Sofer, Oren J. Sofer. He gives a series of courses and meditations on Simple Habit. Simple Habit has 65,000-plus five-star reviews, uh, iOS and Android. It was the 2018 Google Play Award winner for Standout Well-Being App. And like I said, you can try it out for free. If you want premium, we have a special offer. The first 50 listeners to go to simplehabit.com slash verybadwizards will get 30% off the premium subscription. So once again, go to simplehabit.com slash verybadwizards and get 30% off the premium subscription. And no matter what, please use that link, 
simplehabit.com slash verybadwizards so that they'll know you're coming from our show. Thanks to Simple Habit for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to take a moment to thank all of our wonderful listeners. Um, we very much appreciate all the ways in which you support us. Many of you do so by reaching out to us, emailing us, talking to us, um, complaining about us, tweeting uh, to us. Some complaints recently, I guess. You know, you, you say controversial things. Especially about the opening segment last time. I haven't thought through this uh, psychology critique fully, but I feel like I'm onto something, and I feel like a journalist about to expose like a big scandal it's, or something. It's you know, um, it's a symptom of mental illness to feel such grandiosity. So <laughs> I, I just hope you're taking care of yourself. <laughs> it's 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 not too late to be Bob Woodward to my. Bernstein. You know. Yes. I, all I know is that you are a good deep throat. Is <laughs> <laughs> so thank you to everybody for keeping Tamler slightly in check before his mental illness goes off off the rails. Um, we also got some really nice emails. Like yeah. We, yeah. We, we people were really nice about about your uh, losing control of your emotions. Yet another symptom of uh, <laughs> slow slow unraveling of your men, mental state. Seven years is gonna. Doing a podcast with you is going to drive anybody to the brink. <laughs> That's right. As close to we have, as, as close as we have to an anniversary, I think this episode marks the the seven year date that we've uh, since we started this podcast. So ha- happy seven year itch to you, Tamler. Yes, um, happy but, happy seven years to you. And here's to seven more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, no, and thank you to all the listeners. As some of you have been listening since day one. You're incredible and amazing. Some of you have just recently started listening, but are working your way through the catalog. So thank thank you to everybody uh, for for that support. We wouldn't be able to do this for seven years without you. If you want to reach out to us to get in touch, you can always email us verybadwizards at gmail dot com. I will just quickly say that. The longer the email, the less chance we have of reading it. <laughs> but, but we still appreciate. It. I read the all the emails. Oh, you read the. We do read all of the emails, and uh, you can so you can email us. You can tweet to us at Tamler or at Peas or at Very Bad Wizards. You can leave us a review on iTunes, which always helps 
get new listeners um, according to the Voodoo algorithm that Apple uses. Um, you can join in on discussions with our fellow listeners at, at our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash verybadwizards, or on our Facebook page. And you can follow our Instagram if you want to see uh, cool pictures. Yeah, and if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, you can go to our support page on verybadwizards.com. There you'll find a few different ways of supporting us. Um, You can give a one-time donation or a recurring donation on PayPal. And you can become one of our beloved Patreon supporters. Um, There are... Three different tiers. We say this every time. We're going to try to expand the tiers a little bit, and then we never do. But we have three different tiers right now, including the $5 and up tier, where you get to vote on what episode we are going to do from a list of finalists um, suggested by all of our Patreon supporters. And in fact, I think we're coming up to that time again. Probably shortly after this episode gets released, I'll put up a call for suggestions for topics. We also have some bonus episodes up there, bonus material. Dave dropped his new volume of Beats. So you have four volumes of Dave's Beats. It's, it's pretty cool. Oh, thank you. I like to call it music to make love to Really. <laughs> music. I mean, and that's what all of us use it for, um, sometimes even with other people. <laughs> and hopefully we have some bonus episodes uh, on in the pipeline, a Deadwood movie uh, bonus. I'm starting to watch Dark now on you and Yorel's oh, recommendation, and I like it. It's oh, really good. 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 Yeah. You, you get past the German real quick. I, I, I do. Like, I forgive. I forgive the show for being German. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks, everybody. We really appreciate all your support. We couldn't do this without you. Um, I, I'm going to say wh- one last thing. Last time I talked a little bit more about that I'm giving a talk in Toronto. I'll put another link up to that to that talk if anybody wants um, to attend. But but one of a couple of listeners actually have suggested that if I go um maybe there might be a little meetup so so stay tuned if you're in the greater toronto area i might be able to at least have a drink with some of you if you're around it's like mid-september i'll put a date up cool okay now let's talk about this uh amazing and depressing article by paul rosin which which you suggested how did you come across this again so mickey in oh yeah inslet Inslick. One day you'll get it right. I'm not doing it on purpose. Passive-aggressive. I'm really (laughs) bad with names. He quoted one of the Rosin quotes of Solomon Ash, and I forget which one it was, but it was definitely so in my wheelhouse, and I asked him where it came from, and he he gave me the reference, and then also Sanjay Srivastava said that it was one of his favorite papers of all time. Yeah, I think this was the quote. They, In their anxiety to be scientific, students of psychology have often imitated the latest forms of sciences with a long history while ignoring the steps these sciences took when they were young. They have, for example, striven to emulate the quantitative exactness of natural sciences without asking whether their own subject matter is always ripe for such a treatment. So that was, yeah. the, that was the quote. So I, I have to say this is one of my favorite articles as well and i think every at least every social psychologist should be required should be required reading 
I'm going to say some. So this was published in 2001. We'll, as always, put a link to this. It's you can find it as a PDF online. It's Personality and Social Psychology Review 2001. It's hard to believe that was 18 years ago. Um, while I think some things have changed, there's a lot of the critique is just spot on. You know, still, I just want to say some things about Paul Rosen, which is he, he's a treasure to social psychology. He's he's one of my favorite psychologists. He's one of the reasons that I do what I do. He, he, um, is the, the, the daddy, the granddaddy of all disgust research, but he's always just had, you know, when every, when everybody was looking over here, he was looking over here, right? So he was constantly pointing out that there was so many things that were interesting that we weren't paying attention to. And that if we're going to call ourselves social psychologists at all, we should be paying attention to and this is, I think, just the culmination of a lot of his thinking on what it means to be a, a social science uh, it, in the sense of a science that is, that is trying to understand social behavior of human beings and, and kind of pointing, you know, it's a little the emperor has no clothes kind of critique, yeah. which is in all our excitement of calling ourselves a science and acting like scientists, we're we're perhaps not only missing some very, very important things, but because of the way in which we're missing it, we are failing to do the very thing we strive to, to be, which is a mature science. Um, you know, it's hard to come up with an analogy, but the idea that in, in your attempt to imitate something, you are putting yourself further away from the thing that you're trying to imitate. Yeah, I don't know what a good analogy is. I mean, there's, there's, right? We're, we're like playing video game science or something. You know, we're we're really good at mashing buttons. It's, you're doing but, science porn without wrestling yeah. with the complexities of being a real science. <laughs> this is why, by the way, people should watch porn bloopers to get a sense of the reality of. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've never done that. I haven't either because I'm not in the mood. Would, when I'm, would that ruin porn? I I think it would at least ruin the moment. <laughs> what if it just ruined porn forever? Forever? Yeah. yeah then, it's, then, one, hey. it's one thing to kind of know it in the theoretically in the back of your mind. It's another thing to sort of see it. Uh, that would be an um, interesting study. Speaking of stuff you should be doing as psychologists, like measure their erections after watching a porn blooper, like when they watch regular porn. <laughs> anyway, all right. So Rosen is making two general points, which is, um, uh, you know, psychology just in general loves to when people when people critique it, they love to say, well. You know, we're only about 100 years old. Give us a shot. Uh, these other sciences have had hundreds and hundreds of years. We're a young science. Yeah. Like I, I, the, if I had a nickel for every time you heard a psychologist say that. What Ash is saying is that um, it is our youth that, that we should realize that what, what we've done in our eagerness to become a, a real, quote-unquote, science um, is that we've taken on the the attitude and the, the the theoretical approach to how to do science we've taken that from mature scientists prematurely so we've moved to 
um, away from just descriptive observation to straight up quantitative experimental lab based uh, model based hypothesis driven research before sort of mapping the lay of the land to begin with he thinks that that what we're doing is we're it's a caricature of real science we're acting like real scientists we're going through all of the steps um, that a real scientist would go through without we are failing to uh, complete the first few steps that a science requires. And those steps are a real descriptive um, observational, just collecting observations about, in this case, human behavior, right? So, so the analogy that he gives as somebody who is trained in biology is the examples of Darwin and, and the theory of natural selection and of uh, Watson and Crick and, and DNA. Um, by pointing out that these theorists were heavily uh, involved in just curious searching to describe the phenomena, the real world phenomena that they were observing. Right? Yeah. If 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 Darwin had started by trying to do systematic experimentation on, say, one species, there's no way he would have gotten to the insight that uh, natural selection is the driving force of, of the origins of species. Right. Um, and the voyage of the yeah. beagle, which is the work that Razan talks about, it's like a, almost like a just journal of his observations as he goes to the Galapagos uh, and just describes what he sees. It's a very inductive, right. but there's no model, there's no hypothesis, there's no experiment being run. It's just a collection of these kinds of observations. And... That is something that psychology isn't doing, and it's not even clear that there's a like a space for that in within the field of psychology. Yeah, that's and that's that's the sort of damning, depressing thing to me. The, the one of the depressing, one of the more depressing features of this critique is that it's a very sharp critique on on that exact thing. Whether there is room in psychology is sort of as a sociological critique of our of our science whether we would ever allow for this to pass as part of the scientific enterprise so you know as he points out the insight that came from sorry Char said, charlie <laughs> someone said we should do a supercut of me yelling at charlie yeah. <laughs> so you know darwin's descriptive work led to this insight and and ash as ash points out none of the evidence that Darwin could have presented or even that many people can present now for evolution by natural selection, none of it alone meets evidentiary standards for, for proof. It's the weight of evidence, right? It's, it's the, the weight of all of these observations with the absence of a plausible alternative account that, that is what's convincing, um, uh, and, and to be yeah. clear, one of the reasons he's talking about Darwin is at that point, evolutionary biology is a young science. And so yeah. that's the proper 
analogy is is Darwin and what Darwin was doing. Now, of course, conditions were very different, and there is an aristocracy, and Darwin was able yeah. to do that because of the aristocracy. He was able to publish his his books. He was able to take those trips. He was able to, you know, he didn't need to get a grant. He didn't need to, right? and right. we don't have that now. I think that's what's so depressing is it's not totally clear what to do, even if you agree with his conclusions, and I emphatically do every point, like I kind of agree with, but I it's it's not clear what to do in the contemporary world, right? And so, so what's what's missing from this cult? Because you could say, well, what's wrong with rigor, right? What's wrong with skipping to to um, rigorous hypothesis driven research? Um, and and I think Ash makes it clear that there's nothing wrong specifically, right? That in fact, he he even states the experimental method is you know one of the the the, the greatest scientific developments, right? It's crucial to to understanding causality and and drawing inferences about the natural world. But what he what he thinks or what the reason that this criticism is especially poignant when it comes to social psychology is we're we're dividing things up we're chopping people up into these really really small little areas of study and we're n- never bothering to study the whole organism in its context like we're not we're not really studying persons we're we're not studying people we're we're failing to do all of the observational work that might lead to real insight about how people work and you can't do that when all you're doing is developing a hypothesis about, say, to pick on myself, about how a bad smell can change judgments about politics, right? I've, I've, we're not, for somebody who self-describes as studying human nature, yeah. I have certainly removed a lot of the human um, in that kind of methodology. Which is interesting. I mean, I was hoping you'd get a little personal about this because... In terms of all of our conversations, it seems like you are very much in line with this critique. A lot of these quotes, even, and and these observations are ones that you've made in one form or another um, over the years. And, yeah. But then, you know, I think your work, it's, it's definitely on the better side of the psychology work that would survive some of this critique, but... There's definitely a lot of stuff that would fall into the category of the thing that he's worried about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we we were chatting about before uh, when we first were talking about this is, you know, a lot of my work is inspired by Rosin himself, right? right. So, so it's but well, you know, a lot of Rosin's work is is lab based. In fact, Rosin has collaborated with with Yoel. I mean, for one. There's levels, right? So, so Yoel and I have collaborated a lot on our discussed work, and we have n- noticed ourselves that we think that our best work is closer to the correlational descriptive research that Ash is more in favor of. So, so you know, we have in general two kinds of of studies. One is the experiment where we bring people in and we manipulate disgust and we measure something. Another one is just actually measuring disgust sensitivity in people, like around the world right so doing what what we often avoid as calling descriptive research because 
because that's a bad word for many journals in our field because it seems less rigorous. But but we're the most confident about just those, and even then there are flaws to this methodology, but just asking people stuff across the world and seeing what similarities show up. Yeah. Right? That, yeah, that kind of work has turned out to be more more likely to be replicated and I think more interesting yeah just in general well so there's the replication question which is a separate yeah which he doesn't address but I think for for similar reasons right this was way before the replication movement I think that one of the things that one might have anticipated from from his critique right there are lots of reasons that have nothing to do with this critique about replication and you know how many people we have per cell and all that stuff but there is the the removing people from their context part. Yeah. That we are creating new contexts devoid of all of the things that people encounter in everyday life. As he points out, you know, not even taking into account things that are deeply meaningful to to individuals like their religious background or you know, whatever their their upbringing that and and so that's you know, and then looking looking so much at just a s- small segment of the world's population, undergrads in North America, it's you know. <laughs> but so I take it one aspect of the critique is that you know, like Darwin's voyage of the Beagle had nothing to replicate, right? He was right. just collecting observations. There was no study That's, to replicate. There were no experiments. That's a good point. So. There's two different aspects of it. There's the aspect of developing better studies with maybe more external validity, which means that what is going on in the laboratory is likely to happen outside the laboratory. But then there's also this absence of a different kind of inquiry which is still scientific if you think the voyage of the beagle is scientific it's still scientific right. research but it's not something that either could or couldn't get replicated it is something that is just a yeah. gathering of observations and I, I, I no yeah yeah no that's a really good point and i think that that um that one of the reasons it, it might <laughs> so we're fetishizing replication because we want so bad to be a, a mature science yeah, and so yeah. in that sense, you are. It, I I think this is very true about experimental philosophy too. Sometimes what it does is, in their critique of the the way things are are going, they are falling victim to the way things are going in a different sort of way. So in experimental philosophy, they always criticize armchair philosophers who just say, "Well, people." think that if determinism is true you don't have free will and then you run studies to show that it's right but then you're you're not asking the bigger question when you try to get more methodologically rigorous you're not asking the bigger questions whether we're at a stage where we should even be asking that question right and and uh, and i think uh, um Rosen thinks that we're making a mistake to limit our notions of what science is in in just this way, and and we should we should open ourselves to the the possibility, if not the the fact that science um, that it is science to do a Darwin like collection of data in a broad sense, and that we just don't have our Darwin. Like who who is the Darwin of of social psychology? 
And he points to some other science, sciences that everybody agrees are sciences, but that can cannot rely very much, if at all, on the experimental paradigms that we tend to use, like astronomy. And it reminds me of the the hard work in uh, astronomy that was done by Tycho Brahe, who was just an amateur astronomer. He just collected data. All he did was observe, right? So he just observed, 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 had meticulous records of the positions of all the stars for years and years and years. He's kind of a, a he kind of kept the data to himself. But uh, Johannes Kepler was the one who took those data and looked for the regularities and generated his sort of universal laws of, of planetary motion. And then after him, Newton came along and found the, the generalities that would apply to all, all objects moving. But if it weren't for just somebody sitting there and observing with no hypothesis at all, right, doing the boring work of writing things down um, meticulously, we would never have gotten to the point that we got, right? If we had started, and I think this is what Rosin is saying, if we just started directly coming up with theories and trying to disconfirm them through experiments and or, or observations. And this is true for a lot of fields, that the yes. big yeah. the big time godfathers or godmothers, although usually it's godfathers because of patriarchy. Because of biology is what you were going to say. <laughs> they were amateurs, right? And yeah, so maybe right. one of the villains here, and again, this is something that it's very hard to know what to do about if this is true, but one of the villains here is the increasing professionalization of research. And Absolutely. If that's a culprit, then you know this is where it gets depressing like there w- well like you said I mean, you made this point earlier right like this requires a lot of uh, leisure time and money yeah and and the reality just doesn't work that way anymore right the the to even to even have the luxury of publishing something slightly off the the center of the right. field to even publish to you know to even have the tools to know what it means to write up a paper right like all this stuff like it just things have changed so much that and then you go to grad school and you get rewarded and we've discussed this ad nauseum you get rewarded for very incremental very middle of the road um within the paradigm within the paradigm yeah. in, in that sense not in the quality sense but rather very very much central to the field like yeah. like building off of this last person's experiment or this last person's subclaim of a subclaim. And so so those sociological reasons make it hard. But I I do think there are ways around this. And I think that Rosin is pointing to some ways around this. Um and this is why we were joking that that our new field is podcasting. Um one of the reasons that I get so much pleasure from doing something like this podcast is because it allows for a broader discussion of human nature. Um, we we found we like you and I have found and others obviously a way to reward ourselves personally and perhaps one day career wise, <laughs> um, perhaps by actually engaging in the kind of stuff that we were increasingly not allowed to engage in as we got yeah you know in our own field right. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know that this is contribution, but I do think, and like maybe I'm being an optimist or maybe an egoist, but we've had plenty of people say to us that our discussions provoked in them an idea that they then, um, you know, that they then tried to look at more systematically or in more detail. 
And that just comes from our armchair, like the the luxury that you and I have of saying, like, we're going to read Kafka this week. Yeah. Right. No, that's right. Um, The optimistic side of me thinks that there is a tilt in that direction. But then when you look at, I I said this to you off, off air, I think that there is an analogous version of this going on in philosophy. I don't think this is restricted just to psychology. His critique is mostly restricted to psychology and also economics, really the social sciences. But when you look at discussions of what the younger philosophers who don't have tenure, I mean, you know, we're not going to get fired for for doing this. And if we don't publish something because we've spent our time doing this, it's not going to mean that we have to change our whole way of life and livelihood so we have an we have an incredible amount of of luck and freedom and and yeah. I don't know. And I guess this is one of the good things about tenure is that it allows yeah. you to be more like a Darwin and you see that the people who not to not at all to compare ourselves to No, we to are the, <laughs> yeah. like modern day Charles Darwin. <laughs> I, I, I am Johannes Kepler. <laughs> oh, you you're Kepler, I'm Darwin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's fair. <laughs> but I, I still think that, so he quotes Solomon Ash, and Ash is a, you know, one of the f- most famous OG social psychologists. I, I show, you know, some videos of his conformity experiments, right. which would themselves be vulnerable to some of the critiques that Ash and Rosin are leveling at the field. And I think Ash was aware of that. But so, so he, This is a paper so full of awesome quotes. He says, Why is not social psychology more exciting, more human in the most usual sense of the term? Why do I sense, together with the current expansion, a shrinking of vision, an expansion of surface rather than depth, a failure of imagination? And it's that the field is just... It rewards a shrinking of imagination. It rewards a, a, an expansion of surface rather than depth. And it rewards a shrinking of vision. And it rewards them to such a degree that if that you almost have to be like some kind of genius like Darwin or somebody. Right. And we, we don't have the resources in place to even evaluate whether you're a genius like that or not. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think... There are ways, and I, so I want to think of some good examples. So, so Rosin himself offers some good examples. He points to uh, Nisbet and, and yeah, Cohen's very, culture of honor. Very happy right? to very, see that. <laughs> very happy. This is a reason. Yeah. And this will give, I think, a, a, a bit of context to why why Ash may not view his own experiments as as falling prey to this to his own critiques. What's great about this work in Culture of Honor is that it combines observation, right, and um, and that sort of big picture trying to understand human beings in their context, and and then from that point, right, trying to see if there is data, like at a descriptive level that matches the intuitions that were generated from their informed curiosity, right. Um, and then they have some descriptive data about the differences in violent crime among males in the southern and versus northern United States. And then from and then at that point, doing some experimental uh, studies where you bring actually southern and northern males into the lab. And that that sort of holistic approach to understanding the human being is, I think, so he's not saying abandon 
experiments and the statistical and methodological rigor, but don't do it prematurely. Don't like and use a lot of different. So culture of honor. One of the great things about it, it uses interviews. It uses data from newspapers about the different kinds of violent homicides and and violent crimes and when the crimes are provoked by an insult and when when they're not. Although some of the most famous things, like the asshole study of the guy in the hallway, are controlled experiments. A lot of the research isn't, and some of the, some of the best ways of presenting their case comes from. So they did this study where they sent out fake job applications where a person confessed to a manslaughter, and they told the story behind the manslaughter, which is that their fiance was uh, insulted by a guy at the bar, and so he went out to fight the person and compared how people responded to that, people in the South and people in the North. But then they quote in Culture of Honor, and I quote this in my book, but, and, and everybody quotes this, the, the Southern responses. Anybody, you <laughs> did the right thing. Anybody could, it's just a bad break that you got, you know. And right. this is just, it's not something that could be captured by statistics, but it makes their point perfectly. Now, maybe misleadingly, right. I don't know. Like, that's the problem with these things is yeah. when you when you rely on these kinds of interview studies, you're selecting the, the, the letter that will make your point and you know what you're trying to find. So right. setting that aside, it, it, but, but that's why you, you pile on all these different uh, that's right. approaches. That's, that's exactly right. That's, that's, that there is, the, there is the fear that you're going to be presenting a biased, distorted view, which we, we all do. Like, well, you know, it's not that we want to. It's just that, like, you're more sensitive to evidence that's confirmatory. And um, it takes a bunch of people making observations or you making a bunch of different observations um, to, you know, make any claims about the truth value uh, of, of what your findings are, right? Like, it, it's, it's the wealth of evidence. But in a field where that kind of data is not rewarded, where it, it yeah. is something that you're trained as an undergrad or in your first year of grad school to criticize interview studies or, or whatever, descriptive research is, is almost a bad word among certain circles, um, then the wealth of evidence just isn't there. It might very well be biased, right? You don't have a whole lot of people collecting all all those data. You know, I I want to point to some you know some other good examples like the work of Joe Henrik, which is very Absolutely. much in, yeah. in, in line with with this, where you are you are this is another way to do it, where you actually open yourself up to entire other fields that are doing the kind of data collecting that you are either not trained to do or not motivated to do or haven't thought of doing. And you combine, you know, in real good inter- interdisciplinary ways, you you look for evidence. But he was an anthropologist you know. at first, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, and he has, and he's a great example because he combines ethnographies with experiments with yeah. all sorts of other forms of data-based research and observations and right right and and you know anecdotes are some of the coolest <laughs> coolest things you know in his in his papers in his books and his talks when where he's talking he's 
he's giving a little microcosm of an example of say how culture shapes evolution and you're like ah that's like the, that makes so much sense right right one of my favorite uh articles in the whole field it was one of those papers that really really motivated me to study morality or at least solidified it was a paper that rick schwader did where he you know he spent a ton of time in india doing in-depth interviews with uh people in india and in chicago and using that data to to sort of inform his critique of other extant moral development theories I forget if it took the form of a chapter because it's a very, very long description of interviews um, with people in, I think, uh, three or four different communities in India, sort of city and and rural, and and in Chicago, inner city, and and sort of upper class, where uh, he was, for instance, asking them to list off all of the moral violations that they can think of, right, and just just uh, looking at. Again, this is something something that Rosen says. This doesn't require statistics. I mean, you can apply the statistics if you want, but like just looking, some of the most in, interesting parts of this paper are just looking at where there's overlap in between what uh, somebody in Chicago thinks is a moral violation and somebody in a little town in India thinks is a moral violation, and then looking at where there's no overlap at all, right? Like you know, beat, beating your child with a cane when they do something wrong, right? It's it's you just eyeball that, and it's it's this data that is qualitative and descriptive but it's definitely sh- giving you knowledge about these deep differences across cultures okay so i'm going to confess something embarrassing right now i think i have overlapped rick schwader and and paul rosin in my head <laughs> which one it's rosin that was john height's supervisor right yes but height worked with schwader okay. as well so and in fact um, and his Paul Ros Rosen and uh, John Height have a paper called the CAD Triad Hypothesis, where contempt, anger, and disgust, yeah. where they build on Schwader's theory uh-huh. of community, autonomy, and divinity. And uh, I once made the so so you won't be too embarrassed. I once made the mistake of attributing that paper to Schwader, and he quickly corrected me. And told me that wasn't him at all, and that he didn't agree with it. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I I definitely feel better. Thank you. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is also brought to you by Prolific. So we'd like to thank Prolific.co for sponsoring us. Prolific, if you recall from our last show, is a new service that allows you to collect data um, by essentially giving you a pool of, of potential participants for any study that you're doing, whether it's social science or marketing. Um, think about it as sort of an MTurk, but without some of the problems that MTurk has. One of the things I really like about Prolific is how much effort they put into their data quality. Um, they, you know, usually when you run studies with MTurk, you have to go way out of your way to to try to make sure that you're only getting quality data. And that honestly sometimes means that you have to discard like a third of of the people who have taken uh, your survey because they're just people effing around and prolific actually goes out of its way to monitor and and improve their data quality so that that doesn't happen to you but the other thing that i love is that yeah did you say they're effing around (laughs) are we going for the non-explicit tag in the in the podcast now 
I think I've just been around adults for too long. <laughs> so the other great thing uh, that that gets right to the heart of our our discussion that that we're having about um, Paul Rosen's uh, uh, article and the wisdom of Solomon Ash is that you we have now greater access to representative uh, samples than we ever have before. So. So for a long time as a social psychologist, I had to defend using a variety of mental gymnastics and, and judo um, why we only used uh, white male and female undergraduates um, in, in our studies. I don't have to do that so much anymore because now we have actual access to, uh, to nationally representative folks from the U.S. and the U.K. So hopefully that makes our science more generalizable going forward. So if you would like to get started using Prolific, which if you do any kind of data collection with with real human beings, um, I would highly suggest it's prolific.co slash very bad wizards. If you go there, our listeners will get a $100 credit if they sign up and top up their account with $250 or more for the first time. So if you start an account and populate it with $250 worth of participant payments, you'll automatically get 100 uh, added. So that means you'll have $350 to spend. Once again, visit prolific.co slash very bad wizards to get that bonus. It's available for July and August only, which means now August only. Um, but if you use that URL, you'll let them know that you got there from very bad wizards. So thanks to prolific for sponsoring this episode of very bad wizards. Uh, one thing that's interesting is this paper came out in 2001, which is the same year that John Haidt's paper, uh, The Emotional Dog and Its Rational Tail, that's right, um, came out. Which is also now, I don't know if this would be. I don't know if you would consider this a good example of what Rosen is trying to accomplish but it is definitely he is not presenting a study it's a psychology review paper so he right. is but he is presenting a model i think what everyone remembers from it is a description of a study that i'm not sure it was ever published but the study the, of the moral dumbfounding moral dumbfounding case and the and you know if you if you around this time would see him give a talk or a few years later he he would always show a video of yeah the 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 fraternity guy kind of just refusing to accept that brother sister sex was okay what a dumbass <laughs> what a bigot i know well this is before you know stepsister <laughs> porn which is as we all know is just a code for sister porn <laughs> uh, but it's an interesting paper in that there was nothing really to analyze in terms of the methods of it. It was just presenting a a description of a phenomenon that we all kind of felt like had some reflected some sort of reality, even if it was presenting it too yeah. strongly. And I don't know, like the, again, maybe if you're looking for an optimistic example maybe that could be one of them because i don't think he was john height sort of self admits that um he well i guess there's no other way that john height could admit um <laughs> he <laughs> he other admits breaking news john height is a uh, <laughs> is a schizophrenic 
uh, he admits that the psych review paper was responsible probably for getting him tenure. Um, okay. And, yeah. and you know, uh, per- perhaps because um, he hadn't done enough of the rigorous empirical work that we reward, his CV wasn't heavy on that kind of work. Um, so this is not to say, like, there are plenty of things that I disagree about. Like, and in fact, I think you and I have, like... Yeah probably would disagree with John Haidt's conclusions. Like, you can be wrong and do this kind of descriptive work. Right. You'd be very wrong. But you're... But, yeah, you're adding a richness that, you know, people in the 70s were doing, like, you know, a gajillion papers on cognitive dissonance using the same manipulations and, and you know, getting tenure on that. Like, and that's such a small slice of a small slice that 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 it takes somebody to step back and maybe do something descriptive to, to then... Because then... <laughs> You saw like this, and you and I saw this, this explosion of research that went straight to the empirical, rigorous, methodological, right. like big ideas led to people now doing like, like dual model using theory. those, yeah. yeah, or in using those like John Height scenarios as like, right. uh, as, as the, the measure of moral judgment right. where it's like, well, that was not ever intended to be. No, I mean, there's so many examples of this. One of my like things that's driving me crazy right now is a proxy for, you know how people will say human beings are more retributive under this condition. And right. then the way they measure how retributive they are is how they respond in a survey that they would behave in a prisoner's dilemma or in a ultimatum game they don't have the money to actually do the prisoner's dilemma or the ultimatum game which itself would be a lab study that you would worry about how much you could generalize from they're going by self-reports about how you would act in those situations under these uh, under this condition and then at that point and in this sense the john height paper as you said, had a destructive effect because it made people, it gave people all sorts of new avenues for, for oversimplifying <laughs> right, things right. In, in that way. And uh, one of the things, like this, it's so full of great quotes, but here's one. Premature advanced science prone to generate long lines of research that ultimately have little to do with the basic target of the field, <laughs> the social world, and generally pulls people prematurely away from the real world where it all starts. That's so good and so applicable outside of social psychology even as it's also applicable to social psychology really all the social sciences economics political science it i don't know it's 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 something like a requirement of rigor and a requirement of being able to at least think that you can objectively evaluate something something that i think is a real problem yeah so so i think you know, and I'm trying to be an optimist here um, because I think that at least there ha- has been a move in social psychology. You know, in part the the weird critique, right? This this paper very much um, anticipates the the weird critique, uh, the yes. Western educated the, the, and industrialized, yeah, the uh, Joe Henrik critique, the Joe Henrik stuff. There has been more of a uh, an attempt to reward studies now again this is usually you know you can you can write a paper you have to have the methodologically rigorous experiment 
but there is more of a move to accept other forms of data like um you know like coding newspaper articles that kind of thing um and with our ability to acquire data from other sources the the ease with which we can and from other populations i think there is more of this but this what this does maybe is allow the freedom for creative people to to use what rosin calls their informed curiosity it still doesn't prevent the stifling <laughs> the stifling no well of it's, creativity it's definitely that, better but it doesn't so here's the question so what's the relationship between psychology and sociology so social psychology is still the study of the individual the individual's cognitions and feelings and behaviors in a social context um, where sociology is studying more the group level, right? Not the individual. So, so it's group level analysis, not individual level analysis. And what's the difference between then sociology and anthropology? White people versus non-white people. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, I mean, I'm half joking, but that's, it's usually, I, I mean, obviously there are different methods, you know, that, that are used. But I think that it's not that unfair to say when you study people who are not from, quote unquote, civilization, <laughs> um, you're doing anthropology. And when you're studying, uh, I, I'm sure there are plenty of anthropologists and, and sociologists who are yelling into their... So, so, uh, so here's a question. Should it just be one giant field instead of three separate fields? I mean, obviously, it sounds like sociology and anthropology shouldn't be separate fields if it's just skin color and... Well, to be fair, it's probably like the studying of other cultures, right? right? Like the study... um, Sociology can uh, be the study of your own culture, but it doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be. And they have different tools and methods, right? So like you're... you're, um, uh, And a lot of anthropologists, certainly not all, but a lot of them are... Their method is much more to get immersed in the culture of that they're studying so like have informants and talk you know talk to people about their customs but this is what i mean like why shouldn't that those methods be part of psychology and part of like why why are those different fields you're all trying to figure out human nature right right so at least the difference between anthropology or between sociology and social psychology is the level of analysis which is something that that uh, I also want to talk about here because it's part of Rosin's critique is that we're getting the level of analysis wrong. Not, I don't think that sociology and social psychology are the same in that in that sociologists really are studying. You know, you want to study what Generation X is doing nowadays. That's that's sociology. You're you're collecting data from a generation and you're uh, aggregating it. And you're looking at trends in groups of people. Whereas I am concerned with like you as an individual coming in in this social context like doing an ash conformity study i'm interested in how that person is affected by their very local context not their like behavior of a group over time right it's 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 not that we're not studying human nature a lot of us are studying human nature it's just a different level of analysis which is i think gets to what rosin's one of rosin's critiques which is that a lot of sciences maybe psychology in particular, in order to be perceived as more rigorous, they adopt the way of speaking and the methodology and the, you know, all 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 of the sociological aspects of the science like right below them. Right. So 
so below them in terms of level of analysis. So psychologists really want want to be neuroscientists. And this this gets to the the that really interesting anecdote about studying football. Um, Wait, before we leave the distinction between sociology and so the way you describe the differences, it doesn't sound like there should be that much of a difference in methodology. The sociologists really are mostly descriptive. That's what everyone makes fun of them about. They don't seem to have science envy in the way that social psychologists do. But it's not totally clear to me that they're that that's I, not a contingent part of the way these fields have thought of themselves, that that's something that's that's tied essentially to what they're trying to study. Right. I mean, to me, what's clear is that just what we're studying is different, right? So we're studying groups. Econ- you could say the same thing of economists, right? Why, why aren't economists and psychologists the same? Isn't it just psychology about economic behaviors or economic... And and it's it's just a difference in like uh, you're asking different questions about different things. One is group the level of the group. One is the very the, at the level of the individual. I get that. I guess what I'm so social psychology is very tied to model building, controlled experiments, studies. Sociology really is more like Voyage of the Beagle. Or at least it is, yeah, I mean, a lot of the sociology, because, you know, I, I came in con- culture of honor stuff. There's a lot of sociologists writing about that, and most of it is not, it's not all non-experiments, but it is more of a of a balance. Right. I mean, yeah, and I guess I'm just yeah. wondering why. Why it doesn't seem like, given that they're studying different things, it doesn't necessarily mean that the methodologies would be that different as start. No, no, no. So I'm sorry. So I, I'm answering the question as to why they are two different fields. Right. They could share methods and just study right. different things. So, so but they don't. You, know, you can't you can't do experiments very well on large groups of you know people like that. Right. So so you can be informed by experimental research, but it's harder. To, to think of what kind of an experiment a sociologist would would engage in, like true experiment. And I think that your your point that social psychologists should use more of the descriptive methods that the sociologists use is just absolutely true. With without having to say that they should be the same field, I totally agree that we should adopt the the interview uh, methods and the large large scale descriptive analyses that sociology does and some social psychologists very much do that that right so like you know if you're studying politics at all you're probably being informed by a lot of sociologists um and so cultural so, psychology is that just so cultural psychology as that term is something that Rick Schwader was at the forefront of if not coined the term where which is a marriage of anthropology and and psychology then you have cross yeah then you have a cross-cultural psychology that is that is more like just regular social psychologists reducing entire cultures to one dimension (laughs) like um which rick schwader would be very against like for him the term cultural psychology means like you have to really embed yourself like more like what joe henrik does like real deep deep studying of other cultures to inform to inform your psychology 
So I, I guess my point is not that they shouldn't be different fields, but more there there shouldn't be such a demarcation of methods in each of the fields. Uh, I mean, I think you're right. Part of this is is sociological in 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 the sense that you are trained. You know, you can. There's a limited amount of stuff that you can study and become an expert in, and some of the techniques that sociologists use are very different than the ones that psychologists do. But that doesn't mean that we like. There is increasing, you know, here's some optimism again. There's increasingly people who are who are collaborating across those very close disciplines: sociology and psychology. Less anthropology because. <sighs> They're all fucking crazy. I mean, they, yeah, they like don't like like they don't like the thought that there's anything universal in hum, in humanity. But um, a lot of them. <laughs> but I I think like I think you're like we are push like at least I push my grad students to take courses in sociology if they're interested at all. Um, they learn techniques that I never had a chance to learn, and they can collaborate with those people. But you know. This in general gets to the problem of the reward for interdisciplinary work because it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of sort of commitment to, you know, humility, commitment to spending spending your time learning something from other people and um, kind of humbling yourself about it. And then all of the social costs of collaborating with somebody in a completely different department. And it's like, do you want to put your grad student through that? Like the best of grad students will be will do that and they'll you know so okay let's talk about because i think this is relevant actually the, the oh, yeah the football the soccer analogy <laughs> can you describe right. it it's he, he just kind of ends before his concluding remarks he ends with this analogy of aliens studying what we would call yeah. soccer that he calls football kind of right no no he's referring to football he's he's referring to football like when he talks about the oblong ball Oh, he is talking about like football. American. Why did I think yeah. he was talking about soccer? Because pretentiously. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is a, uh, a what he calls a whimsical scenario uh, illustrating the problems of prematurely entering the advanced stages of science. So he, he imagines that there's a Martian Institute of or Foundation for Furthering Science, and they have a subsection of it that's dedicated to sports, and they have been studying tennis for quite some time then then somebody comes along and says hey you know if you're really interested in sports like there's this other sport called football that human beings play and we, we you should fund us for that we should like start looking at that if you're really interested in in what this domain of sports and they then he imagines that the tennis researchers researchers point out that no well we, hold on hold on we've made great progress in studying uh tennis uh we now understand the scoring physics and other aspects of the sport there yet there were still many this is a quote yet there were still many problems to be tackled in the microanalysis of the game there was for example the well-known yellow ball problem <laughs> a yellow ball was used on, on only some occasions and no one could predict the, this distinct occurrence pigment analysis of the analyses of the yellow ball were just beginning why asked the tennis workers commit money to the murky enterprise of football when such good problems remain with tennis <laughs> and that's a funny example because yellow balls are used at wimbledon right um <laughs> because they play on grass or for all grass court tournaments and again it's one of these things where if you just ask a tennis player they would just <laughs> tell right. you that or ask a, a tennis official 
but right. um, um, but but you know, but like as he, as Rosen points out in this, you know, you can't asking people is not rigorous. No. Like you can't just rely on self report. Um, uh, and so he's 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 going on uh, talking about the precise quantification of, of the science of studying tennis. Um, <laughs> one proposal suggested correlating two measurable variables. You know, nice objective measurable variable the number of the players an incontrovertible datum and the percent fat of known biological importance other proposals suggested electrical rather than biochemical analyses one group proposed the use of standard electroencephalogram techniques eeg each player would be wired up and the total set of generated potentials for all of the players would be measured with a computer right so so he's pointing out these very sciencey ways in which you could imagine an alien trying to understand human behavior and like as you're reading this you're just like well that's so obviously the wrong level of analysis for understanding <laughs> tennis and then like football so, too so my fa- I, fo- I actually think my favorite isn't a diss on psychology it's the economist one a group of economists proposed a model for football on the assumptions that a each player was totally independent of any other b all actions <laughs> in the game were symmetrical c there was no change over time in the activities of any player or team D, all players were seeking the same goods, and E, all players operated under the same constraints. So sort of making fun of all the formal models in, in you know, classical economics, these, are, these aren't experiments, these are just formal models that make right. these assumptions that are just clearly not true. That's such a funny parody of... <laughs> Right. Of, and again, it's right. like I'm embarrassed for thinking he was talking about soccer. I don't know why I did. But part of the reason <laughs> is all the different ways in which he describes it, it's not totally clear. It's not totally clear. <laughs> right. it's, only, it's only when he describes the shape of the ball that it becomes obvious. <laughs> yeah. you know, so he's imagining that this group of this, this, uh, study, studiers of Martian, uh, Martian studiers of sports are a, a granting body. And so he says that. Um, Imagine that some researchers proposed a research project where they were going to ask such open-ended questions as, what is the purpose of the game? Is the ball important? Why do the players move toward one end of the field for a while and then to the other? The committee unanimously rejected this proposal supported in this decision by unanimously negative reviews from tennis researchers. The grounds for rejection contained in what might be called the quintessential pink slip were many. So he's so one, the study relied in large part on verbal reports, which were of questionable scientific status. Two, worse, the reports were retrospective. Three, there was no control. At a minimum, it would be necessary to question a group of control people who were not familiar with football. Four, the authors, the authors were unaware of the importance of social desirability. So trying to say what the researcher wants to hear. Five, at best, the research proposed in, involved only a single study. Six, the study might not produce interpretable data. Seven, the investigators had no model for football. They proposed simply to explore it. <laughs> I'm summarizing these. Eight, the authors did not make clear what were the dependent and independent variables. And it goes on, which is just, it just reads like a an actual set of negative yeah. reviewers. <laughs> I could tell, um, like, that and I'm having not tried to submit a grant, but there, this must have been fun. <laughs> yeah, totally. He could have, it's like, they, he probably cut and paste some of these. Um, uh, so, in the beginning of the conclusion, Rosen says, 
Oh, can we re- can we go through the one of the other ones? So sure, one sure. reviewer thought of a clever alternative account of any data the authors might gather. The reviewer noted evidence for a theater tradition on Earth in which what were essentially imitations of real life were portrayed. Perhaps the reviewer proposed all the authors would be describing was such a theatrical portrayal with considerable distortions, no doubt, of the actual reality. I... <laughs> I think there is this kind of, but what if, you know, as a way of stifling creativity, as a way of stifling these more descriptive, more open-ended ways of trying to investigate something, you come up with some imaginable alternate hypothesis that would shed doubt on what you're present on what you're presenting, and yeah. but I can imagine it happens all the time. Well, I mean, it's weird because when you're asked to review something, you you don't want to write a review that says this looks great. Publish it, right. and why? I don't I don't know why. Like you, we're you know, there's some some social norm pressure to to generate real valid cri- criticisms, and so you come up with all the ones that you lear- that you've learned about all the reasons why this might not be a good paper, and so you write those down, and uh, you know, sort of ironically. Perhaps ironically, the the older the researchers get and the more experience they get, they're more likely to to just say like, yeah, yeah this is good. Maybe they want to do this, but I don't know. It's the younger um, ones that are more religious about the, this. You don't like. I don't even want to read my first few reviews. Yeah, you know, these were like pages of like <laughs> detailed criticism. So, so um, the point of this analogy is like, and this is how grants go. And like you're coming up with like clearly the most the best way of trying to figure out what's going on in football or tennis and they are rejecting it unanimously because it doesn't fit the model of how science should be conducted. Right. And embedded in this is is I think a critique that Rosin doesn't make that explicitly but but there's there's a couple things one he's saying is that they are using a model of rigor from a more mature science but another one is that they are using a level of analysis uh that is uh from another more mature science that wouldn't make a difference like what like what if you want to understand why people play and how people play football uh doing eeg studies isn't going to give you (laughs) right you know like the answer and and the fact that you're even asking that is is sort of a weird it's a weird way of approaching the question but it's like well but it's objective right yeah you know that's like neuroscience like i mean that's i don't know if he had this in mind when he was doing that but you know like if you want to study what's the best way of teaching people to read don't look at their brain look at like what actually teaches people to read right you know right right um, I want to give a couple of examples of of what I people who are doing, like who have done good stuff. One comes from Robert Provine, who is a neurobiologist and a psychologist who has studied laughter the most, and so he's written two books on laughter. But you know, he's a neurobiologist, right? So he could have just jumped to like the brain analysis of it. But he's not like that. He's actually a very creative and uh, big thinker. What he did was he systematically, over 10 years, sat in social situations and recorded people talking and their laughter. And 
yeah. from those data actually came up with some real interesting insights on why people laugh. And one of the the most interesting ones is that most people don't laugh at all in any attempt after any attempt to be humorous. They just laugh after like normal things. Like ninety percent of laughter isn't a result of a, an attempt at humor. And it takes patience, but like a, a a real kind of mind to be willing to spend that much time and resources to just descriptively study laughter, right? Yeah. Like that's, it's, that's not... An informed not curiosity. An informed curiosity, right? I want to just briefly mention um, the work of Jeannie Tsai, who's a, who's a researcher at Stanford who studies emotion across cultures, um, because it leads to another point that Rosen makes, which is that we're not like Martians. We're in the unique, in the unique circumstance of... N- having introspective access to what it is to be human right like uh yeah so so we can even use our own feelings and thoughts and behaviors to to generate um to motivate our research and to inform it and she she's looked at at emotions across cultures but one of my favorite studies and the one that i always use to explain her theory isn't an experiment at all she's in describing the difference between east asian and and western westerners when it comes to emotions she says that well they in east asia they value different kind of emotion and that is calmness right whereas uh whereas westerners value more like high arousal emotions and all she did was look at children's books and measure the size of the smiles of the characters in those books mm-hmm. and she showed from that that uh you know as one piece of evidence certainly not not like the the final piece of evidence but um that that uh, the smiles in Western children's books are much bigger than they are in in East Asian books, and that's that's like you are you and I going to the library, right? Like and just picking up a bunch of books. That's that's the method that she used. Like, and that's way more insightful than. But you could you could see some grant that, committee that would like, never fly alone yeah, as a paper right. alone. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. I guess that's the point. I. <laughs> So I love that. I, I I do think though that the situation is more dire than, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. And it's good that certain people are doing more rigorous kind of experiments and certain people are doing stuff like that. They're feeding off each other, building off each other. That would be how it would be great if that's what was happening. Like at the best of like culture of honor and yeah. some of the Henrik stuff. But it's not like that, and it's very heavily tilted in the more rigorous, more experimental, model-based, hypotheses-driven, as you said, direction. I mean, it's illustrative that I don't know how many more examples I could right. come up with. Like I, these are these are my goalposts. Like you know, these are these are things that I wish the field was doing more. And I point to them only because I agree with you that it's, yeah. it's a dire situation. I point to them as as showing that in principle the kind of research that rosin is is calling for can be done and it can be done by good scientists but like but all of the pressures that we've described and all of the the training that goes the other way like yeah so here's here's what i i want to propose as one of the sources of the problem and i don't know what to do about it exactly but we don't have a good way of evaluating the other kind. 
Like you can look at stats and you can look at their methodology and you can look at whether they pre-registered or not. And you can, you can like, there are ways of analyzing that and feeling like, okay, you're giving this person a fair shake, but to just kind of see if they've triggered something that's potentially interesting and worth exploring or, you know, like kind of shed light on something that was otherwise might have been concealed from us is a kind of subjective form of evaluation that I think people are maybe rightly, but but also but maybe also problematically wary of engaging in. And so we will always go in the direction of, well, at the very least, I can give a fair evaluation of this because I know the rules. I get what the rules right. are. I don't know what the rules are. This is true in philosophy, too. Like, I don't know what the rules yeah. are for analyzing, like, a Bernard Williams essay or, like, Thomas right. Nagel's The Absurd. Like, it's a classic paper. I love it. But, like, what are the rules if some new, young, non-Thomas Nagel person put something like that in with no citations, no real field other than like Camus and like, like no yeah. literature really. Like what are the rules for evaluating that? What are their criteria other than just this is, this is really illuminating and I find it fascinating. And when you lack that, it becomes very hard for some, it, and, and this is completely separate from whether it's a, valid and insightful way to to conduct your research when you lack that there will always be a shift in the other direction and i'm not sure how to like right yeah no that's a good way of putting it i I totally agree with you that that evaluability is key because you know when you get to like so so this has been a critique of social psychology specifically there are i don't want to pretend like there aren't tons of people who are doing pure qualitative research and descriptive research right. and we just don't you know we dismiss it yeah but one of the reasons is from what for for the reason you say because how far is it from that to just like postmodern drivel where somebody introspects right. about doing their laundry and i think it's the the fear of falling into something like that that leads us to embrace greater rigor um, maybe perhaps but you you remind me of there is an analogy with when you're buying products. So um, I like I like gadgets and stuff. So like oftentimes, things that are targeted toward nerds that like gadgets are charts with features. And so this yeah. is true of many products, right? They'll have two products side by side, and they'll have like the list of features in a little check mark box, right, on each of them. You know, does this product compared to this product have whatever this feature versus this feature, right? Like, is this TV ultra high def. Um, this one is, this one isn't. Is this TV have surround sound? You know, this one does, yeah, yeah. this one doesn't. Um, all that. And that evaluability makes you think that you're making an objective decision, right? You you are you're confident that you this exactly. is giving you the information that you need to buy it. But what you're missing is um the more holistic approach to the product that might actually completely change the way that you are right. satisfied or enjoy that product. What are the things that were even chosen to be on that list of features? Yeah. You know, sure. You can come up with an overall rating and an average and like a score even. Um, but, and really what you, what would be a better guide 
would be somebody telling you like I bought this TV yeah. after I bought that TV and I really liked it and for for these reasons like someone they, you trust and, yeah and there's somewhere between you know somewhere between postmodern drivel and uh fake fake objectivity that that arises from from the illusion of you know the quantitative illusion of objectivity yeah some somewhere there is where where we need to be and finding that spot is is hard and finding how to uh yeah let alone how to encourage that yeah how to encourage it and how to reward it and how to punish bad versions of it and that's i think the the real challenge and the the and i think it really applies to so many domains of life uh, yeah and, and i think it's yeah. it's good it's going to increasingly be a problem as we become more quantitatively driven i mean you see this in the larger culture stem is now the big thing and you know the humanities suffer yeah and 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 sometimes for good reason cuz there is a lot of drivel in right. the more qualitative stuff but what we're losing and what we think we're gaining is could be a problem all right i i, I need we, we need to wrap up i wrap up. i, I I I propose any researcher out here who's listening to maybe take a I don't know I don't like calling it a, a sabbatical is, is but doing taking a year and actually uh, looking for something to to do on a purely descriptive level and you could be quantitative and and descriptive but just like actually observe and record I think that would be maybe I'll try to yeah do that. you do that I'll come up with something yeah I will do and then I you then I'll cushy job this. <laughs> if anybody can do it, you can. Yeah, it's just too much. Uh, Netflix won't watch itself, Tamler. And I promise not to uh, engage in too many, ex- too, too much <laughs> experimental, overly rigorous experimental research. And that anal- all that analytic work that you do is just <laughs> so reductive. <laughs> I mean, I like uh, you know, like some of my early stuff kind of is. You know, I wrote a paper on fucking zombies. I can't believe it was you. All right. I uh, hope you enjoyed this discussion. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.